This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, I am excited to welcome author and psychologist Dr. Darcy Lockman to the show. Darcy is the author of All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership, published by HarperCollins. She's also written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, among others. And today, Darcy is here to help us explore the question, why, when we enter into parenting, does our role often shift back into these gendered norms? Why is it that we might share in an equal distribution of the invisible load and the physical load? And then when we enter into parenthood, all of that or the majority of that gets shifted onto mothers. We explore the idea that mothers are more biologically suited for this caregiving work. We explore gender and intensive mothering and the roles that they play in this shift that happens. Darcy has done such a deep dive into the science and the research around these various topics and is such a wealth of knowledge. You are going to learn so much from this interview today. Let's hear my conversation with Dr. Darcy Lockman. Do you find yourself struggling to put your foot down when people do things you don't like? Do you have people in your life who are questioning your parenting or making you doubt yourself? Are you unsure of how to express your needs and boundaries? Boundaries don't come easy for everyone. Some of us were raised to be people pleasers. Some of us feel like we must constantly sacrifice in order to be a good mom. Some of us simply never learned how to set healthy boundaries because it wasn't modeled for us. But once we become a mom, boundaries become even more difficult to set. You might find yourself struggling to set them with your children, your partner, or even your family members. Whether you're carving out space for me time, standing firm in your parenting choices, or communicating with your partner, boundaries are an important part of protecting yourself and prioritizing your own mental health. So how do you learn to set boundaries, especially when you're already dealing with busy mom life? Dr. Asherina Reem, Psyched Mommy and I created the workshop Boundaries, Setting Limits Even When Those Around You Push Back to Make It Easier. You'll learn how to define boundaries, avoid common boundary mistakes, use scripts to hold your boundaries, deal with boundary violators, and so much more. You can learn how to set healthy boundaries and stick to them. Go to happyasamother.co slash boundaries to get started. That's happyasamother.co slash boundaries. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we're dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. We all had expectations going into motherhood, but reality often has a different plan. Let's work together in shattering unrealistic expectations, letting go of shame and guilt, and accepting where we are on our motherhood journey. We'll pack a toolbox for motherhood with expert advice, practical tips, relatable stories, real moments, and honest conversations. My goal is to give you the knowledge, tools, and resources you need to parent more freely. However, this podcast should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. 
it's time to do motherhood differently, toss out the idea of perfect, and enjoy the journey. Let's dive in. Darcy, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I recently picked up your book, All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. I believe it came to my attention from Kate Mangino in her Equal Partners book. And I was just like, we got to have a chat, you and I. I need to get to know you. Like, I am excited. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for your interest. I'm happy to be here, Erica. I'm so curious. We were sort of talking off air a little bit about your journey from journalism into psychology and taking on this myth of equal partnership. How did this book come about? How did you find your way here? Well, I bet you can guess. I found my way here by having two children with a man. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that how it all begins? I know. (laughs) So my husband and I had our first daughter in 2009. She's about to turn 13 now. Hard to believe. And we actually had met in grad school. We're both psychologists. Mm. And there was never any plan for me to stay home. I was always going to work. And of course, I assumed in that, that we'd be equal partners at home. Mm. And he's, you know, a modern progressive guy. That was his assumption too. But we found ourselves kind of falling into like really stereotypically gendered roles as time went on. And I noticed it more than he did because I was the one who was kind of taking on all the work that went along with having a small child, Mm. you know, finding the preschool, figuring out what the preschool needed from us, finding babysitters, making friends so that we had, you know, people with kids to hang out with. He was working evenings more than I was. So I was, you know, kind of always on dinner. I was home more. So everything at home was falling to me more. And as this became more evident and more burdensome over time, I started to feel like, what's going on here? And of course, in talking with other working mothers, and all the mothers that I met were working mothers, because they were all from the preschool that our daughter was at, everyone sort of had the same observation. Hmm. This is all left to me. My husband loves our child. He's really engaged with you know him or her. But he doesn't know about what needs to get packed in the bag for school. He doesn't know when the professional development days are at school and we're going to need to find alternative care. He doesn't know that the sheets from preschool have to be washed on the weekends. Like it it just kind of went on and on and on all snowballing. Hmm. And I just really started to think, you know, over the early years, like, why is this? None of us thought we were going to be living this way. And we're all, you know, modern, progressive, contemporary women with jobs and salaries. Like, why is it going this way? Mm. And it really became this all-consuming question in the early years of my children's life. We had our second daughter three years after the first. And things didn't get any better from there. And it was sort of like, no matter how I tried to address it, I never really got through to him. And again, everyone around me was experiencing the same thing. So because of my journalism background, this question just became so nagging. I thought I have to set out to answer this for myself. What is going on here? Mm-hmm. And that gives birth to you exploring all these various lenses and things that contribute to why this shift happens. Like a lot of the studies also show like we might have an equal distribution of household chores and things in our partnerships and marriages until we hit parenthood. And then everything sort of reverts back or shifts again. So I'd love for us throughout our chat today to just 
look at some of the various lenses or some of the whys that you did find in your book that do contribute to this. Because I think that I've had different guests on and we've looked at it from different lenses. And I saw your work as sort of an overarching lens, exploring each of those various whys and avenues, because I think gender is a biggie, you know, it's a big one. But then you also talk about intensive mothering. And I'm a lot in that work and, and how that plays its role. And What does biology have to play in all of this? There's just Mm -hmm. so many contributing factors here. So Yeah. I mean, I think generally speaking, the reason that this happens is patriarchy. You know, patriarchy is a system under which we are divided into two very obvious groups, Mm. males and females. And then we create the roles that supposedly go along with each biological sex. You know, we call it gender. Mm-hmm. And none of these things are really natural categories. I mean, we have different reproductive parts, but the qualities that are attributed to men and women change over time, depending on the needs of a society. I mean, there's nothing really biological about any of the stuff we call gender and think of as kind of like natural categories. There's nothing natural about them. Patriarchy is a system that gives more power and privilege to one gender over another, plain and simple, mm. right? We can kind of look at categories like race you know, now that we're how many uh, 150 years out from slavery and say, well, clearly that was a social construct designed to disempower one group, right? Mm. We don't look at gender with as clear of a lens because we're still living in it. Mm. Patriarchy is a system that disempowers one group under another. So, right, women are left to the care work and men get to kind of go off and pursue their own pleasures. Not that care work can't be a pleasure. It certainly is. But when it's unequally divided in a supposedly loving and equal relationship, you know, there are clearly some problems that ensue. So that's the overarching broad answer to your question. But I did, you know, break it down for the book. And the first, I think it's the second chapter and one that is so important to me is called Not Biology. Mm -hmm. Because in interviewing people, I got the sense from women that they were sort of fatalistic about this. I guess we can't do anything about this. It's just biology. And, you know, that's, that's so far from the truth. Males have the same caretaking capacities as females. And some of the stuff I learned in reading the science was super interesting. Like, maybe you knew this. I didn't know this. Men's hormones change when in close contact with a pregnant woman. Mm-hmm. So their hormones rise and fall in conjunction with their partner's pregnancy. And we don't know what the mechanism is for this in humans, but they have found it in some species of primates. And I can't remember which one it is. I think it might be the marmoset. The fetus excretes some sort of amino acid or I don't know, my biology is not good. The fetus excretes something that is then comes out of the mother in her urine. And the smell of the mother's urine is what sets off the hormonal changes in the father. Yes. So you knew this? No, I read it in your book. I, <laughs> okay. I read it. I read this chapter. I was in it for this interview. Yeah, yeah. I remember exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Wait, did you already know this? Does everybody know this? So it, it's just super interesting, right? The way we're sort yeah. of calibrated toward one another. So this is only to say that men are as primed for parenthood as women. We just don't think about it because we've decided that there are these natural categories that leave women better suited to cooking and cleaning and caring for children. I'm really curious in the women that you interviewed, in what way did this belief rear its head? What were the words that some women were saying? Because I'm sure this is a really big core belief I think a lot of people have, especially when we look at the era of intensive mothering and that mothers are the end all and be all for our child. I think that we often attribute that piece 
to some sort of biology or being better able to perceive needs, being better able to emotionally coach and handle emotions and nurturing, you know? Right. It makes it a lot easier to not be enraged with your husband if you write it off to biology, husband, partner, whatever, right? Mm. If you say, well, this is just biology. I'm just better at this naturally and organically. How can you be mad at him? He's just constrained by his biology. So Mm. what I came to hear from women was it was a kind of a way of living with the inequality in their home in a more harmonious way. Because you can not go with that and you can fight all the time. And it's very hard to, in my personal experience and hearing other women talk, it's very hard to get a male partner to really see his privilege, so to speak, right? And see the sort of internalized sexism that's playing out in the home. Men get very defensive, understandably. So, right, how do women deal with that denial and defensiveness in a partner? They'll often say, well, you know, I'm, I'm really just better than this, right? If we... um had a, a race, he'd probably win. He's probably faster because men tend to be a little faster. And, and in, in the same way, I'm just better at this other stuff. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about the faith beliefs that I was raised with, where women are helpers and they are born to have families and be caretakers and be sort of this like, help me. Uh-huh. And so I feel like there is a real set of beliefs or maybe even value systems that could be woven in here or traditions and religions because sure. like this is a biggie, you know, I feel like this one goes really deep. Right. Yeah. I mean, whose interest does that serve? Mm. Right. The idea that women are naturally better at this and should do this all while men are out playing golf, drinking beer and having a nice time. I mean, you know, just to say personally, I get so much joy out of taking care of my family So I don't mean to cast this all as like this horrible thing that women are saddled Mm -hmm. with. But at the same time, it's one thing to love it. It's another thing to have another adult who shares those responsibilities, who's not taking them on. So in fact, most religions, because of course they were written, well, look, I mean, in my opinion, and and I'm I'm Jewish, though not religious, Mm -hmm. religions were written by men. Mm. I mean, men have because of their greater physical strength and prowess at war, which was at one time important for claiming land, Mm. and things like that, got to make the rules. So the religions that they created privileged the needs and desires and autonomy as men over Mm. women. And so Sure, I mm-hmm. hear you. And I, with all due respect to everyone's faith, that is a pretty consistent thing in the monotheistic religions. Though I, I don't believe in pre-monotheism. So I, I'm not quite sure about that. Mm-hmm. It's just really interesting to think about where some of these beliefs about our ability to care for our children or our partner's lack of ability to care for our children in certain ways, like where they stem from. And And I think that it is you know, family of origin and religion and society. Like there's so many lenses here and pieces that inform that, right? Right. So that's where we start. But one of the things that I learned in doing all the research for the book is that parenting behaviors are learned. They're not Mm -hmm. innate either for Mm -hmm. males or females. In fact, maybe you read this in the part about primates. In some primate species, firstborns almost always die. The infant mortality rate is so high Mm -hmm. because the parents don't know how to care for them because they've never done it before. So in species where the primates can accept help from their elders, the babies have a much lower mortality rate, but first-time parents often fail. Like the babies starve to death. Hmm. I nursed my kids. Someone kind of shows you how to do it, right? The baby roots around for the nipple, but there's breastfeeding coaching. There's all sorts of stuff, right? It's not something that comes 
naturally. Parenting behaviors are learned for males and for females. So, But what happens if you start off with the belief that women are naturally better at that, who does most of the caretaking? The mother. And then who learns what caretaking behavior entails? The mother. And how do we get better at something? Through experience. And if the mother's the one who's having most of the experience, well, she is going to become better at those things. And then we say, oh, yeah, that's nature just taking its course. When really, of course, Mm. if you spend a lot of time doing something, you get better at it. And if you don't, you probably don't. So Mm -hmm. the beliefs that we start out with inform the behaviors that we then take on, which reinforce the beliefs that we started out with. So it really becomes a snowball effect. A self-fulfilling prophecy, really, right? Like I sometimes talk about it as sometimes we sort of unconsciously build the cage in which we're trapped. Like, and we don't necessarily know it, and it's not at a fault to us, you know? It's just yes. we trap ourselves in these patterns because we right. hold these beliefs. Exactly. And then it's really, really challenging to shift the scale and, and to break out of the patterns. Some of the most interesting research that has come out of the Nordic countries where paternity leave is use it or lose it, right? Some of the countries like us is it Sweden, Norway, they have use it or lose it solo paternity leave. So the father gets like six weeks or something like that. And if he doesn't take it, he can't give it to his wife. It's not a shared family leave. Mm. So men are taking paternity leave more. And what they've found is that in men who have taken solo paternity leave, they continue to contribute like two hours more household labor, like five years into the life of a child, they're still contributing like two hours more than dads who didn't do solo paternity leave. And that really speaks to the impact of learning. They're alone with their babies. They learn how to take care of them. They don't feel less competent. So it's really that time alone with baby that overrides our gender beliefs because mom isn't around, right? If they're not, if they're both around together, the impact isn't the same. Mm. But when dads have solo paternity leave, things tend to go much better in the family in terms of harmony and fathers contributing more. It's really fascinating. I'm in Canada. I took three consecutive mat leaves with my children and talk about that cage that you build in terms of like establishing those patterns and locking myself into them. Yeah. I was the pretty much like solo. My husband commuted into downtown Toronto, 12 to 14 hour days. I was at home first with one child, then with two. And then on the third, three children, three years and under. And it wasn't even by choice. Right. He did not like the fact that he was that far away. He did not like his commute. He was prioritizing and socialized to prioritize work so that he could provide for his family. And I was socialized into taking three maternity leaves. And I know it's a privilege to have maternity leave, but I also see how when it's only offered to mom, that cage or those patterns or whatever it is get really established and then reinforced over that time. Right. He didn't have the opportunity to learn what the children needed because you were the one who was home with them. So yeah, maternity leave without paternity leave really does reinforce those gender dynamics. I think one of the other pieces you mentioned in this chapter that was so powerful is when we attribute it to our biology, well then how in the heck do we change anything, right? Exactly. It's called the naturalistic fallacy. Hmm. Well, that's just natural. So there's nothing to change, even though we don't like it. It can't be changed. It's just natural. Really saying it's just natural is sort of a, um, I don't know, a bow to the status quo. Things are just going to stay the way they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really discouraging, or it sounds like maybe we find some acceptance in that role. I don't know, it could maybe go a few different ways for different people. But yeah, if we think that somebody's incapable of change, then we either 
learn to accept how they're contributing or maybe we leave and like a solo parent or co-parent or something like that. I went back and talked to some of the women that I interviewed maybe about a year ago. I was writing a piece that, that actually ended up getting killed, but I learned that a few of them had gotten divorced and told me that that was a big reason why, because their husbands never stepped up and they wound up just fighting all the time and were too angry. It was sad to hear. Hmm. What is gender essentialism and, and what role does it play here? I feel like it weaves in here in this conversation. It's the idea that the genders are essentially one way or another. Women are essentially kind and caring and thoughtful and men are essentially go-getters and full of motivation to, you know, live full lives outside of the home. Mm. And how valid is that concept? Because you went through a lot of research and science in the book about this. Yeah, it's interesting because they have looked at the traits that were thought to be typically male and female over time. And what they've seen is that the traits that we attribute to men, we now also attribute to women, but it hasn't gone the other way. So now we see women, you know, in this day and age, we see women as assertive also, we see them as capable, but we don't see men as like caring and compassionate. So if you ask people which traits are male and female, you know, the traditional male ones have now kind of expanded to include women because we see women in more roles in society, but it hasn't gone the other way. So these female traits remain thought of as essentially female and not male. Hmm. So like agency is now attributed to women, but caretaking capacity is not attributed to men. This is sort of like Gallup poll kind of things. It's fascinating to me because we are limited by the development of both of those ideas. You know what I mean? Like we can only go so far in our equal partnership until fathers are allowed to be sensitive and nurturing. And like that is a social thing that can be attributed to them. Like we get sort of stuck or we plateau without them being able to take on those traits. We do. The way that boys are socialized, and no one does this consciously, or at least most people don't, is the problem, is that they're not supposed to be sensitive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and again, this is research, and it's Carol Gilligan, who's a, a psychologist who I love. She talks about around the age of seven, boys start to be made fun of for being emotional and sensitive, called sissies, Mm. you know, lots of name calling around sensitivity in boys, which starts at a really young age. So boys learn early on that to be like a girl, Mm -hmm. so to speak, is going to get them ostracized. And again, it's so young, right? It's seven. Now, girls have like a slightly larger gender window, right? We react warmly to so-called tomboys, right? Mm. Girls who want to run around and be active and are assertive. We don't really tell girls that they can't be quote unquote like boys until they sort of start to enter adolescence. So girls have kind of a bigger gender window where they're allowed to be who they are as opposed to be as the norms of the group would um, kind of require. So yeah, I mean, what happens when a boy has to kind of dissociate that part of himself from such an early age? He doesn't develop it he's ashamed of it, he loses touch with it. So boys raised in a patriarchy, as Mm. all boys are, are going to struggle with those human parts of themselves because they're so disparaged. We really do a disservice to boys in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me really look at it with a lens of compassion. And we just miss out so much by not allowing 
our fathers and our men to have this bigger window, right? Well, yes, I think with boys, right? That's true. And I I do like personally over the years, you know, when my kids were little and I was so overburdened because there was so much, I was mad at him for not doing stuff. Now I feel more bad for him because though he's, he loves our daughters and they love him, he has a less intimate relationship with them than I do. Mm -hmm. And I do feel bad for him because of that. He doesn't know what he's missing. And look, he he tries. I don't mean to make this about our marriage yeah, at all, yeah. but I'm just, you know, given that we're like the test case for my book, as well as interviews with lots of women, I, I still see it going yeah. on. You know, neither of us, neither men nor women, fare well in this dynamic. Right. Never mind that the research shows it's one of the main reasons of relationship discord in the early years of parenting, and it can be pretty intense. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MomWell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MomWell. ZocDoc.com slash MomWell. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed. But the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Ashirin Areem's Psyched Mummy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes. And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create all the rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection, a course designed to be your go-to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. 
And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo RAGE20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com rage and save with code RAGE20. That's momwell.com rage, code RAGE20. I think about the early years of parenting and him getting up and being on like the 6.30 a.m. train every day, me being like, this is maddening, mm-hmm. you know, yep. um, but also him wanting to be home and like not wanting to impact his career because it was our lifeline. And I just think about so many of those pieces, you know, it's just such a disservice to families that men are still pigeonholed in this way. And I do see, and when you explain it as like a, a gap or a window, I can really in my mind conceptualize the just such confined parameters in which you know, we define ourselves as masculine or whatever. Right. And it's all made up. It's all a story. In regard to what you're saying in terms of him being the family lifeline economically, the idea was once that women carried more of the household responsibilities because they earned less money. But it's now more common for women to earn as much or more than their husbands. And the dynamics at home don't change. So while it it used to be in the 80s, easy to say, well, this is because, you know, they're the primary earners. Um, okay, well, nothing shifted, even once women were were just as likely to be the primary earner. Mm-hmm. So it really shows how sticky the gender roles are. It was never as economically or financially motivated as people wanted to believe. Well, I hear that a lot from my clients who are weaning back into work from maternity leave and expecting that the load will redistribute and it doesn't. And then now they're carrying a full-time job, weaning back into work and still taking every phone call, managing all appointments. And then especially in families where we've got complicated needs or special needs or higher needs children. And it doesn't redistribute in those cases often unless, you know, there's a real intentional, like open dialogue and awareness to have these conversations. And exactly. Yep. You know, in talking to people, the only way I've found that anyone achieved any balance in this regard, even people with the best intentions, was if it was very conscious. Mm -hmm. Men really had to be open to listening to their wives and what they were saying and to reorganizing their behavior, right? That's one of the sort of um, downsides of patriarchy is that women are told your job is to care and to be subservient, Mm -hmm. right? We would never use that word comfortably, but that's kind of what we're told, that's the role they find themselves in. And men don't want to see that. And that kind of goes on. And on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have a chapter devoted to intensive mothering in here, too. And I would love for us to touch on that. There's a few pieces in there. There might even be some gatekeeping. There's various pieces. But if we could maybe unpack intensive mothering a little bit and how it feeds into this unequal partnership. So intensive mothering was a term coined by Sharon Hayes. I believe is a sociologist, in the mid-90s. And it referred to the idea that a mother's job every waking minute was to tend to her children's every need, and that no one but a mother could do that kind of care for her kids. Mm -hmm. And it became a social norm. And really, interestingly, this was the time at which working mothers were entering the workplace in droves, right? And because it's been a few years since I wrote the book, the numbers aren't so uh, fresh in my mind, so please excuse me. But intensive mothering became the standard and the norm at the same time that women were really starting to achieve more professionally. 
Mm-hmm. So it was sort of like, okay, you can go back to work, but only as long as you keep putting the kids first all the time, mm-hmm. right? But don't let anyone know at work that you're putting the kids first all the time because that's not professional. But really, you need to be putting the kids first all the time. So there became this sort of societal pressure for working moms to always be in the mother-appropriate place at the mother-appropriate mm-hmm. time. And while, of course, no one writes these rules down for us, we absorb them, right? We absorb them around us. I would have never felt comfortable missing a preschool performance or a parent-teacher conference because I would have been, at least in my mind, shamed and looked at as a bad mother. Mm. You know, my husband, while he would go to those things if he was able to, had no compunction about missing them. There would be no shame or guilt there. It would just be like he had to be at work, right? Well, I have a job too, but the expectations for mothers and fathers are not the same. So again, as women started achieving professionally, there was this new pressure to be an even more involved mother. And we see it all around us. I'm sure you see it all around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even I thought it was interesting the way that you titled this chapter. Wait, I got to pull it. 24-hour lifelong shifts of unconditional love. Yes. Like, what a realistic standard for us to live up to, right? Like, doesn't that feel achievable? And yet, these are the norms, know, right? right? These yeah. are th- This is like what is internalized. Uh-huh, absolutely. Truthfully, this is what we expect of ourselves. Yes. But when you put it out on paper, it's like, I kind of chuckle, but... That's what it feels like. That's that's what we expect of ourselves. I would see mothers at the playground who always had snacks and wipes for kids' hands and water. And I would be like, shit, I never have any of that stuff. Right? Mm. And it's like, you know, I wasn't living up to the standard, to the mothering standards of my community. <laughs> and now that the kids are older, I'm seeing that the kids having their needs tended to all the time whenever they had one. Not so good for the kids, right? They don't learn that they don't always need a snack or a drink of water as soon as they want it. So it doesn't actually wind up going so well for the kids either, because we all have to learn in our development that all of our needs are not always going to be that all of the time. Right. So it's not good for mothers. It's not good for kids. But still, there we are. It's still the standard. We see it with people on Instagram and you know social media. Mm-hmm. And now that I can see things through a lens of intensive mothering and a lot of the work that I do, and we talk about the perfect mother myth here often, you know, can really sort of code those behaviors as I see them now and see them through that lens. There was one particular quote in this, like under the can women father section in this chapter of the book about intensive mothering that just kind of stood out to me and made me ponder a little bit. And it's intensive mothering directs mothers and not fathers to constantly strive to optimize every opportunity for their children to tailor every move to meet their needs. We leave fathers in our dust and they do not protest. And so it's like how this need to overcompensate or this expectation or pressure that is put on women that men don't feel. And then we take on more knowledge, take on more things as a result of that, right? Like I feel like intensive mothering really feeds this beast of like self-martyrdom and like the invisible and cognitive load of things. Yeah, and allowing fathers to stay uninvolved, right? It's Mm. easier to sit back and relax when your wife is so intense about everything. Mm -hmm. There's nothing left to be done. Mm -hmm. One last question before we maybe get into like, how can we start to chip away at this, which just feels like such a big question. But I'm curious the role of anger in all of this, given you know, the title of the book, Mm -hmm. All the Rage. Mm -hmm. And I've had many conversations recently with different professionals and mothers about, like, yes, we have anger 
on an individual level that might be in conjunction with our irritability and postpartum depression. Like that's a, an experience of like maybe depression, like on an individual level. But then we have anger as like mothers who are undersupported carrying the unequal share of the load. And that is a different experience of anger. What place does that play here? Can we unpack that a little bit? Well, it doesn't do anything good for a marriage or a relationship. Hmm. That's for sure. And I would say, you know, as a psychologist, I would say, what is postpartum depression? Hmm. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. So you, you have a woman who has a new baby who has no idea what she's doing, and she's alone in her concerns, right? Not because she has a horrible husband, but because of gender roles and the way things are, right? So postpartum depression is perhaps not unrelated to feeling abandoned and alone with a huge new responsibility. Hmm. So that, that's one thing I would say about something like that. They're not so separable. Right. In fact... Women, I can't remember, I'm going to get this a little bit wrong, but when men have paternity leave, the incidence of postpartum anxiety and depression plummets. Right. Right. Yeah. So these things aren't unrelated. But anyway, the anger is bad for marriage. Individual women will tell you about it. Before I wrote the book, I had so many discussions with all the women I knew about how angry we were at our husbands for being so unaware of anything that needed to be done with the kid or around the home. I think on an individual level, we really have to be willing to interrogate our own internalized sexism. Both men and women have to be willing to do this. It's not our fault. This is mm -hmm. like the water we swim in. None of us got bored and said, I want to mm -hmm. grow up in a sexist society and imagine that women have to do all the grunt work and that men just get to come home and sit down to dinner, right? None of us were like born saying that. It's just sort of the world we live in. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for me, the first time I was really confronted, because, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up in an era when women you know, girls could go to college, women could get good jobs. So I developed a new appreciation for the role of sexism in our society when I first had kids. It was my first opportunity to do that. And once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. Mm. So a couple really has to be able to look at that in order to do things differently, right? To make better choices for ourselves. We have to understand that we are making choices, even the things that feel natural and like a given, they're choices. So on an individual level, that's what needs to happen in a couple. They need to agree that this is happening and decide that they're going to work to change it. And that's not a one-time conversation. It's an ongoing process. Mm. So that's on an individual level. On a societal mm -hmm. level, you know, a lot of things could be useful. So you're in Canada and I'm in the U.S. where we have no, no leave for anyone mm -hmm. at all paid. Like there are some companies now that are starting to do it, the, like bigger companies for employee retention and stuff like this. And I'm sure that it makes a huge difference for those companies leave for mothers and fathers and expectation that fathers are just as important to their children as mothers. I'm not a policy person, so I don't really have good insight into that. But there are a lot of societal changes that could certainly happen. And the Nordic countries are good examples of that. Mm -hmm. Normalizing fathers taking leave or prioritizing them taking right, leave, exactly. things like that. In the Nordic countries, women still do more care work than men, but the ratios are smaller. The women and men are closer together in terms of hours per week spent in family work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can see how our anger can be very consuming or like I, I teach a lot on resentment and, you know, how to have these conversations with our partner and have workshops around this from like a therapeutic perspective, right? Because I do think that our anger does get misdirected in the sense that like our partner didn't like 
consciously opt into this role. They were socialized into it just as much as we were. And when yes. we can see the issue yes. as a team and try and figure it out. Yeah. And I do think that like sometimes my anger and fury about this fuels my platform. So uh, maybe there are ways in which we can use our anger productively For sure. or in an empowered way. Right. 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 When we're in good touch with our feelings, yeah. as people need to be, we can use them productively. And anger is something that we can certainly use productively. Yeah. And you're right, we're a team. And I heard from couples who read the book together. Mm. And then we're able to say, okay, this isn't our fault, this dynamic between us. Of course, this is happening. What do we want to do about it? Right? It's when one person is angry at the other. You know, I heard this from women, and this happened for my husband and I, I was angry, and he was defensive, and we never got anywhere. Right. If you can start from a place of it's not really our faults. There's so much more going on here than meets the eye. And, and we don't want to live this way anymore. What are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Could we maybe talk about how we can enter into this conversation? Or maybe like I say scripts, but some like, how might we open this conversation up for somebody who's listening and they're thinking, you know, like, I really need to approach this conversation with my partner. What might be some ways or little tips or things and I can contribute here as well if you like because I feel like when the blinders come off sometimes we want to go in voice dialed all the way up you know and just really we're passionate we're aware now right so what you're saying is how do you have a conversation where someone can hear you I mean yeah I, I don't mean to sound self-serving but I would buy my book and give it to your husband and say please read this with an open mind because I definitely heard from men who were like mm. thank you I kind of knew this was going on, but all I ever hear from, you know, family members is what a great dad I am. And I knew I wasn't really pulling my weight and now I really get it. Mm. So that, that would be one suggestion. It's a great I place have. to start, honestly. It is. It's a great place to start. I mean, the other thing is like if you are married to someone, you need to, you know, men and women both, be open to hearing their concerns, right? Mm. And we all need to be responsive as partners. And we hopefully have partners who can be responsive, right? What is a relationship mm -hmm. if not being responsive to the cares and concerns of the person that you're with? So I suppose in a moment when you're not going to yell, say like, look, I have some concerns. I really need you to hear me, right? Mm. This is a real problem for me. I want to explain what it is. And I, I don't mean to do it in an attacking way. You're, you know, you're great with the kids. I know you love them. But there's some stuff going on that you don't notice that I need us to be sharing more, right? I, I suppose any calm way you can approach it. Mm -hmm. um, but your partner has to meet you there. It takes two to have a calm conversation where each person is heard. Right. And like with openness, yeah. right? And not getting on the defensive. Not defensive. Yeah, which is so yeah. hard because when someone tells you I'm upset with what's going on, you're automatically, right? We all get defensive. It's natural. It's, it's very hard. I mean, mm -hmm. it's very hard in the culture that we live in to really take this stuff on. No one is so compelled to do it in a way that moves the needle. It doesn't seem. It's a real hard thing. It's a hard needle to move. Mm -hmm. It is. I think about myself as somebody who in their adulthood was diagnosed with ADHD and how when I have emotions, I want to talk about them now. Like I want to like, this is, a, this is an issue right this moment. Yeah. And so for me, there's just some really practical pieces of like, making sure we can both give each other undivided attention, that the kids aren't running around and there's not chaos around us. Like giving the attention and time to this important conversation that it deserves without distractions and chaos, right? Mm -hmm. Little things like that where, you know, we can sit down together and I'm not 
barging into my husband's office when he's working and I'm like, ah, this thing is really, you know, he's not going to be super receptive if he's in the middle of his workday. So there's little things like that that I've had to learn over the years to like, can we like sit and have our like our like family chat later? Like there's some things we need to talk about and, you know, get caught up on. Yeah, I think being specific is useful too, right? Because, you know, how often does the laundry get done? Who's going to like twice a week? Okay, you're going to do it Mondays. I'm going to do it Thursdays. I mean, really, the couple that I spoke with who had had the most success, I think had spreadsheets, Mm. right? These are your days for daycare pickup. This is my day for school pickup. This is who's making dinner this week. Like systematizing really takes out a lot of the gendered assumptions. If things are systematized, you're doing this, I'm doing this the division of labor can be more equal. It's one of the things that people have found that works. It gets around the sexist assumptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. Where can people find the book? Where can they learn more from you? They can find the book anywhere you get books. They can order it at their local bookstore. They can get it on barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. It's published by HarperCollins. So anywhere you get books, you can get this book. I'm not a big social media person because I'm a Gen Xer. I'm a little beyond the cusp of using social media in such a fluid way. And Twitter was driving me crazy. I had to get off. (laughs) I was just consumed with like angry politics all the time. And that was no way to live. So I'm not that present in that realm. I am on Instagram, but it's mostly just pictures of my kids for posterity. Yeah. We'll make sure to link the books, but you can search All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership anywhere books are sold. And thank you, Darcy, so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you, Erica. This was a pleasure. Isn't Dr. Darcy such a firecracker? I really enjoyed getting to pick her brain and can just sense her passion for this topic. There were so many key takeaways here for me, especially when we're talking about how fathers and men, generally speaking, have a narrower window in terms of their gender expression. That's something that I'm going to take with me and roll into my work. Whenever we're talking about the invisible load and the distribution of the labor within the home, often it can bubble up and bring up feelings of resentment and frustration towards our partner. If this is something that you feel like is prevalent in your relationship or that bubbles to the surface in times of frustration, I encourage you to check out the resentment workshop that I host with Dr. Asherina Reem's Psyched Mummy. The workshop provides you with some skills and tools to approach these conversations and really start the process of redistributing the labor, being able to have these productive conversations rather than facing off all the time and fighting seeing each other as the problem. To learn more, head to happyasamother.co slash resentment. That's happyasamother.co slash resentment. I'll see you right back here. Same time, same place next week where we are being joined by the busy toddler, Susie Allison herself to help us unpack and understand creativity, imagination, and independent play. If your child struggles to entertain themselves, to sit and play independently without constantly needing you there to be their partner and their support while they play, you are going to want to tune into this episode. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast. 
To join the Happy as a Mother VIP list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to happyasamother.co slash newsletter. Until next episode, Mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing an amazing job.